I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media Television, Channel 98. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We don't have ranking or scoring or voting or anything like that. We believe that stories shared from the heart uplift, inspire, and bind us all together. And that's what's most important to us here. Our shows have a theme to help get people's minds thinking and turning on what they have to share share on the subject, and tonight's theme is getting stuck. We're going to hear from five tellers tonight, Erica Skogland, Jennifer Kinsey, John Rochelot, Rochelot, Marianne Pernold, and our own John Lovering. Our MC Pat Spaulding will come up and introduce each teller to you before they come on. Following the storytelling, we will have an on-air interview with two of tonight's storytellers as well. But first for the stories, let's welcome Pat to the stage. Thank you, Amy. Good evening, everyone. Our first storyteller tonight is Erica Skoglin. She grew up in New Jersey, but currently lives in Durham, New Hampshire with her husband and two daughters. She is very proud of her work as a violence prevention educator for Haven, an organization committed to ending domestic and sexual violence and to helping its victims in Rockingham and Stratford counties. Erica is also a puppeteer. There's a lot of us around. <laughs> whose interest in theater has led her to join the Stranger Than Fiction improv troupe. In her spare time, she can be found thrift shopping, collecting 50s dresses, and talking to herself. <laughs> Possibly about a play date that she'd hoped would never end. And then, it didn't. Her story's title is, I Want to Hold Your Hand? Erica, come on up. So this is the best game of Barbies that I have ever played. And in my seven years of life, I have played a lot of Barbies. But this one, this is different. Like, this is super, super fun. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want this game of Barbies to end. Like, I want it to go on and on and on forever. And so I say to my friend Suzanne, I say, I don't want this game of Barbies to end. I wish it could go on and on. And she says, maybe it doesn't have to end. And I see her little face light up, and I realize that I have made a huge mistake. And she says, maybe you could sleep over. Now, I have not slept over at anyone's houses. I, I have not slept away from my house. Like, that's not true. I've slept away from my house, but like my family was always there with me. You know, it's so, like my mom, my dad, brother, sister. Like, I have not slept away from my family ever before. And I was not about to start that night. So I'm like, oh, Suzanne, what a super idea. But you know, I don't have any of my stuff with me, so I just don't think that's going to work. And she's like, well, what stuff do you need? I'm like, ah, like a nightgown. She's like, I have so many extra nightgowns. I'm like, oh, 
toothbrush. You know, dental hygiene is super important to me, and I really, really need to get my toothbrush. And she's like, lucky day. Like, the dentist always gives us extra toothbrushes, and we have a whole drawer full, and you can borrow one, and we have everything you need, and this is awesome. And she runs off, and I am stuck. And I hear her saying to her mother, Mrs. Cochran, she's like, hey, Erica wants to know if she can sleep over. And I think, I am unstuck. Because I don't know about this house, but at my house, you never ask the other person before you ask my mother for things, right? Like, so you can never say they want to know, like that's not good. And you can't ask in front of the other friend. It has to seem like it's a totally original idea that you're asking your mother you know, for this play date or for this dinner over or for this sleepover, even though you always check with the friend first. But you need to make it sound like it's, it's totally you know, unsolicited. So I'm like, she just asked her mother that way. Her mother is definitely going to say no. She comes running back in the room, and she's like, my mom said yes! So I'm like, oh, that's so great. So she's like, you just need to call your mom. I'm like, super, I'm stuck. So I call my mom, and then I think, wait, I am unstuck, because my mother is not a spontaneous woman. So she likes plans. She likes order. She likes to know what's going to happen. She's not going to let this, this sleepover happen that she didn't plan. She didn't know about it. It's already the evening. Like, this is not happening. So I'm like, mom. It's Erica, and Suzanne wants to know if I can sleep over, but, like, I mean, we didn't plan it, so, you know, and my mom's like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Sure, sleep over, that sounds like fun. I'm like, ah, maybe you didn't hear me. Um, remember the dinner that you like us to all be together at dinner, and it's probably a special dinner, and I don't want to miss this dinner, so it's totally fine if you want to say no. And she says, oh, you know, I didn't even really plan anything special for dinner tonight, so it's totally fine. Do you need me to bring you anything? And I am stuck. And I hang up the phone, and Suzanne grabs me, and we are playing, and we go back to playing Barbies, and it is just not nearly as fun as it was before. It was not even that great of a Barbie game. We ate something for dinner. I, I don't remember what it was. We played some other things. It was not really turning into a great night. So I say to Suzanne, finally, I say, you know what? I'm a little bit nervous. I've never slept at anyone's house before. And she looks at me, and she says, well, then that is perfect, because this is not a sleepover. I said, what, what do you mean it's not a sleepover? She says, we are not going to sleep. <laughs> We're going to stay up all night. So if we don't sleep, it is not a sleepover, so you don't have anything to worry about. And I am like, yes, I am unstuck. This is not a sleepover. So she's like, we are going to go, like, in the middle of the night, we're going to go down to the kitchen. We're going to eat whatever we want, like, out of the refrigerator. She's like, we're going to build a fort. We're going to have a dance party. We're going to see what's on TV really late at night. It is going to be so much fun. And I'm like, yes, this is best. Okay, all right, so everything's good. So we play some more. Things get better. I think Barbie's, you know, improved a little bit after that. Um, and then her mother comes, and she's like, okay, time for bed. And so Suzanne's like, okay. And I look at Suzanne, and I'm like, uh -huh, I'm not sleeping, right? And she's like, no, no, we're, we're not sleeping, totally. But we have to pretend we're sleeping because my mom needs to think we're going to sleep so that then we can get up and do all the fun things we planned. So I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So I put on my, well, I put on her nightgown, and she gives me a Holly Hobby sleeping bag. I set that out. We get in them, um, and, you know, we're like, we're like whispering and giggling. <laughs> and like, you know, she's pretending to snore. So it's like, snore, and then giggle, 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 whisper, whisper, giggle, 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 whisper, 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 giggle, whisper, fake snore, whisper. Nothing. And I'm like, Suzanne. Suzanne. Nothing. I'm like, Suzanne. I'm accidentally hitting her really hard with my elbow. And she is asleep, dead asleep. Nothing. She's not moving. 
<laughs> so I am stuck. And so I do what any seven-year-old in my situation would do. I start hysterically crying. And her mother hears this, and so she comes in the room, and she's like, you know, uh, Erica, is that you? Are you okay? Are, are you crying? And I am like, I am not okay. It's like, I am sick. I am incredibly sick, and I think I need to go home right now because I don't want to get your whole family sick with the sickness that I have that's a terrible sickness. And she's like, well, come over. So she feels my head. She's like, you know what? Your head doesn't feel hot. I'm like, no, this is not the kind of sickness with a hot head. This is the kind of internal sickness that you cannot feel from the outside, but it is very deadly, and I should probably go home right away. And she's like, well, why don't I take your temperature? I was like, well, this does not involve a temperature. This involves internal badness. Just trust me. Just call my mom. I need to go home. And she's like, you know what? It's really late, and I, I don't want to bother your mother. So why don't we just go in the kitchen and sit for a second? And I am stuck. We go in the kitchen, and we sit down. And she's like, you know what? How about if I make you a glass of warm milk? That's really soothing, and, and I think it'll really, it'll really help you. And so she heats up some milk, and she gives it to me. And that is when I realize why people drink milk cold, because warm milk was <laughs> not soothing. If, if I didn't have a stomachache before, I had one now. Um, <laughs> And that didn't help. I'm still stuck. And so she's like, you know what? I have a really good idea. I'm like, you're going to call my mom? And she's like, no, we're, I'm not going to call your mom. She's like, how about this? She's like, Mr. Cochran is away on business. So I have my big bed all to myself. So how about you come and you'll sleep in my bed with me? She's like, I can rub your back. I can sing you a song. I can read you a book. And, you know, maybe that will help you to be able to calm down and go to sleep. Maybe that will help you feel better. And that way, if you feel sick, you can just tell me. And I'm like, I feel sick, I've already told you. Um, but, uh, so in my head, I'm like, no, that is a terrible idea. I don't want to sleep in your big bed. I want to go home. But I am walking down the hallway with her to her bedroom. And so we get in her bed, and she's rubbing my back, and she's singing me a little song, and she's holding my hand, which would be a really, really nice gesture if it wasn't for the self-soothing mechanism that I had. No, I am not a baby. I do not suck my fingers or my thumb. Okay, I suck my fingers, not my thumb. I suck these three fingers, my middle three fingers. These are the ones I sucked on. And she was holding them hostage. <laughs> and I couldn't say to her, like, hey, Mrs. Cochran, I'm a big baby, and I suck on my fingers, so could you give me my hand back, or I'm never going to get to sleep. I just had to lay there and let her hold my hand, thinking she was doing something super nice, even though it was terrible for me. So I'm laying there, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I'm never going to get to sleep without my hand. So I say to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pretend I'm sleeping. If I pretend I'm sleeping, then she will either fall asleep herself, or she will, like, you know, think I'm sleeping. She's done her job. She's going to feel really good about herself. She'll let go of my hand, and then I can have my fingers and go to sleep. Or lay there all night being miserable, which is what I assumed I was going to do. So I decide that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pretend I'm sleeping. So I close my eyes, and I breathe in, and I breathe out, and I breathe in, and I breathe out, and I breathe in, and I breathe out. And then I am being jostled, and I open my eyes, and it's Suzanne. And she looks at me, and she's like, good morning, good morning, good morning, it's the morning! Why are you in my mom's bed? And I'm like, oh, and my brain is like, um, your mom's bed? This is not your mom's bed. What are you talking about? This is your room. No. I'm like, okay. I'm thinking, um, oh, I was going to the bathroom. I must have taken a wrong turn. No, that's not going to work. I'm like, um, your mom was really nervous and needed some comfort, and she wasn't feeling well. I made her some warm milk. No. So I'm like, what am I supposed to say to her? How am I going to, you know, save face here? And before I could say anything, she grabs my hand, and she drags me out of bed, and we are playing Barbies, and it is awesome. And I am unstuck. 
And I realized at that moment that not only was I unstuck because I had survived my first sleepover, my first of many sleepovers to come, but also because I now had a new self-soothing mechanism that I could use whenever I was feeling stuck. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. I remember a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at Auntie Mad's when I was four for my first sleepover. And I got upset and I went and threw up and my mother did come. And I totally loved Auntie Mad and I, um, cousin Kathy and it's just that thing, like it wasn't home. Oh, you took me back. Next up, we have Jennifer Kinsey. She lives in Stratham, New Hampshire with her husband. Both enjoy an active outdoor life, savoring the beauty of New Hampshire's lakes, mountains, and the seacoast. Their two sons fled the nest years ago, but are thoughtful enough to still occasionally come home to visit their parents. Isn't that good? Jennifer works for Seacoast Mental Health Center as an administrator and psychotherapist. She is continually dazzled by the insight and wisdom she gains from listening to other people's stories. Now, at age 62, Jennifer is just beginning to tell a few stories of her own. The one she'll share tonight is titled, The Seen, Unseen, and the Unexpected. Come on up, Jennifer. Thank you. As Pat said, I'm a psychotherapist, and I spend my days listening to people's stories. And in a minute, I'm going to share some of those stories, but I need to say a couple of things first. Um, the, the stories I'm going to tell you are true. However, the details of the people I'm going to talk about have been altered and changed to protect their privacy, um, which is the right thing to do. And um, so I love my job. Most of the time, I love the people that I see. It really is a privilege to sit with people in a room and listen and get to know them. Um, over the years, I have come to think of my, the threshold of my office as a sort of a magic portal. People come in with these diagnoses or labels, and they cross into my office, and over a period of time, it's like brushing sand away from a precious stone as I really get to know them in a way that is almost more rare today than it's ever been. So most of the time and most of the clients, I really learn to love in a, in a certain way. And I, and I really feel very privileged to do the work that I do. One of the other things that I've learned to think about is, because I, I, I do see the similarities and the shared qualities that, that I have with my clients, and I assume all of you have. And beyond the diagnosis, I would say that Almost everybody I see, if you could distill what it is they care about most, it is grappling with their relationship with themselves, and that's a big topic. That's how do you take care of yourself? How do you set limits with others? How do you see yourself in the world? How do you find ease with yourself? Huge, huge topic. Do a lot of work in therapy with that. The other, this all goes together. So relationship with self, relationship with others, I think that's clear to most people, and then relationship with, with families. Um, and I think of families as the compost heap of life, because let me tell you, it is complex, smelly, and fertile. Um, and 
<laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about family stuff. But to illustrate a little bit about what my days are like, I want to introduce you to two people that I have worked with in the past, not currently. And, and the first one is Ellen. And Ellen, like everyone I've ever seen, has a diagnosis. And her diagnosis is kind of a big, scary one. It's schizophrenia. And for those of you who don't know what that means, um, and it's often misused, the, the term schizophrenia, it's that people think of it in popular um, culture as split personality. It's not that at all. It's a, it's a thought disorder. People with schizophrenia can hear things, see things that, that aren't there, think things that aren't there. And when they're not treated, they can often be very distressed. Um, so Ellen is someone that has this scary diagnosis, but does pretty well as long as she's medicated correctly, and she lives a full and interesting life. But like everybody I see and I, and I experience, and I think you do, is she grappled with relationships. And there was a period of time we worked together when she was struggling with a, a new relationship, which was a little odd. Her, um, an old boyfriend of one of her daughters, her daughter was married, this was an old boyfriend, had moved back into town, and he had looked up Ellen, and he was taking her out to lunch, which was great. She thought that was fun, and he was a nice guy and interesting. But she was really struggling with, um, was it fair to her daughter? Should she tell her? Should she um, be the conduit of information between the old boyfriend and her daughter? And it was really making her uncomfortable. So we worked over a period of time to try to find where those boundaries were, where she felt comfortable, what did she want. She really wanted to maintain the relationship, but she had to find some comfort with it. And, and a lot of work with how to say no or set limits, which is hard for a lot of people. Um, so that was Ellen. And the next person I want to introduce you to is Sherry. And Sherry had a less scary diagnosis. She had a diagnosis of bipolar 1, which is the, the less scary one. And she didn't have terrible manic episodes. But she tended, she tended to get stuck with depression a lot. And when she was stuck in depression, she um, would isolate, um, had a very negative view of herself, and really struggled to, to see how she could be friends with people and interact with people, and it really impacted her life. Um, but her struggle with this relationship that we worked on in therapy was really um, related to a new friendship she had developed with a man that had moved into her community. And he was, they were very good friends. They would have lunch and dinner and go to concerts, and all that was great until the gentleman wanted a little more than she was interested in giving. And that, that meant he wanted her to come back to his apartment. He wanted to snuggle and hug. And that was just more than she was looking for. So again, it was really hard for her to figure out what she wanted, um, how she was going to communicate with him where the lines were, how she was going to say, no, this is enough and still maintain the relationship, because she wanted the relationship. So over the, over the weeks that we worked together around this, she really came to a place um, where she could do that. And she was still friends with this guy, and he didn't get everything he wanted, but she, she was able to get what she needed and wanted. 
which is which in my world is success. You know, I often think of the way we work as if we can just stumble in the right direction. That's success. <laughs> so, um, the the thing about these two individuals, uh, remember, they both have diagnoses, and I think of diagnoses as labels, and we all have labels. So I, I need to share a little something about both of them. Um, Ellen had the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And there was a period in therapy where I began to question whether this relationship with the former boyfriend of the daughter was real. And I really struggled with, okay, I'm a therapist. I bill insurance. Is this ethical to spend hours in therapy talking about a relationship that might not even be real? And I really came to believe absolutely it didn't matter whether it was real because it was important to her. And it really impacted the quality of her life and it was her struggle with um, setting limits and finding ease and getting her needs met. So that was, that was a bit of an eye-opener that, that for me. And the other detail I need to share about Sherry, the woman who, had bi who has the diagnosis of bipolar, is that you need to know that she was in her mid-80s, and her ardent paramour was in his late 90s. And what that shows me is that it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. It doesn't matter what your age is. The stuff that we all share is this dealing with relationships with self, others, and family. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. And that's why Lars and the Real Girl is one of my favorite all-time <laughs> movies. <laughs> if you haven't checked that out, it's, it's a dear movie about a whole pretend relationship this guy has. And, and his therapist takes him very seriously. It all works out in the end. Next up, we have John Rochelot. He is a consultant, a speaker, and hobbyist musician who enjoys many great and small adventures, such as nonfiction writing, <coughs> organic gardening of vegetables and wildflowers, wild mushroom hunting, and numerous athletic pursuits. But first and foremost, John considers himself to be a creative problem solver. Don't we need a few more of those? Um, and he has uh, a four-step process that he believes in. Number one, admit there is a problem. Number two, admit there is a solution. Number three, commit to finding the optimum <laughs> solution. And number four, this is a tough one, commit to implementing and maintaining that solution. So maybe we'll pay attention and learn something through John's story. This philosophy has led him to create, patent, license, and produce numerous inventions in the HVACR trade that he has made his 37-year career. And really, John, you don't look like you could have had a yeah. career for Thank 37 you. years. I know. You'll find out soon. <laughs> Tonight, we hope to discover how John may have applied these techniques of problem solving in his story. Getting to my first full-time job on time. It's time to tell the story, John. <clears throat> Thank you. 
The summer after fifth grade is when I first stuck out my thumb and hitched a ride. I was 10 years old. It was 1972. Five years later, I hitched all the way to Columbus, Ohio with a friend uh, whose father lived in Miami, Florida, and that's where we were headed until uh, Child Protective Services sent us back to New Hampshire on a plane. And that was my first plane ride, and it sure beat hitchhiking. <clears throat> so in 1979, I was 17, and I moved to Concord and had my first apartment. And I also had, I was preparing for my first job on Monday morning. And it was the first full summer of the year, and the weather was forecast to be exceptional. So I decided that I was going to hitchhike 118 miles north of Berlin, New Hampshire, <clears throat> to um, meet up with my two brothers. And I figured, you know, I could leave Sunday morning and get back to Concord in time, and I'd be prepared to go to work on Monday. So that's what I did, and I got to Berlin in record time, in about three or four hours. <clears throat> and when I got there, I got some great news from my oldest brother, Mike. He said, you know, John, my landlord, who lives downstairs, her son is coming up from Concord uh, this weekend, as he usually does, and he'll be returning uh, on Sunday after dinner, so you can catch a ride with him. So I started to inquire a little bit more about this person, and it turns out that that person lived in the apartment building I just moved in, oh. and I knew this because he had a 1968 Camaro that was maroon with a white stripe from the trunk over the roof and down the hood. And my brother had seen that car numerous times, <clears throat> and... Uh, so I was excited to be able to get a ride, uh, a ride on Sunday in this beautiful hot rod. And so we had a great weekend. We fished uh, the Androscoggin River north of Berlin in Errol, where it's not polluted. We had a barbecue. We drank a few beers. Wasn't supposed to say that. I was only 17. But um, <clears throat> I even helped my uh, brother Paul uh, bleed the brakes on his 1969 Chrysler Imperial. And everything was going great, and it never occurred to me that that whole weekend, I never saw that 68 Camaro. Mm. And so 6 o'clock Sunday evening rolls around, and I asked Mike, Mike, where is so-and-so? And he said, let me go check. So he came back up, and the look on his face said it all. He never came up that weekend. And I panicked. It's like, Mike, you got to give me a ride to Concord. He says, I can't. I don't have any gas money. He just recently became unemployed. But it did give me a ride eight miles south to Gorham, where he dropped me off at Route 16. I stuck out my thumb. And right away, I got a ride from a very generous person all the way to the Kankamagus Highway in Albany, just south of uh, Conway. And that's when the weather turned for the worst. Um, these ominous black cumulus clouds just rolled over the mountains without any forewarning whatsoever. And you could hear thunder in the background, and, you know, if you lived in New England for any amount of time, you know thunderstorms don't start with a whimper. They come on with a bang, and sure enough, it started pouring, and lightning was shooting all around, and branches were breaking off trees, and numerous cars, tourists returning to the flatlands, we call them, uh, passed me by at a high rate of speed and splashed me with the puddles, and... Uh, I thought, look at me. I'm in a t-shirt, summer shorts, and high-top Converse sneakers, and it's pouring out. So I started walking, not the one to just stand there and hold out my thumb. I figured, you know, 
It could be that driveway right down there in the distance where somebody pulls out and is going that way. And so I'm walking and hitching and walking and walking and walking. I estimate I walked nearly 12 miles to Route 113. And by the time I got there, it must have been after midnight. And the last meal I ate was at lunchtime. So I was hungry. The temperature must have been around 50. Uh, I was wet from head to toe. When I walked, my feet squeaked and squished, and I started to panic. I, I thought, I'm not even going to make it home tonight. How am I going to get to work in the morning? And I'm going to get fired before I even start my job. So I continued to walk until I became so exhausted, and you know there were swells and lulls in the weather, and, and during the lulls, the mosquitoes found me. And, and the last remaining black flies of the season found me. And I prayed for gusts of wind to come around and take them away. And they did. The wind came around. And, but also with it, worsening weather. And, and the rain beat down on me like BBs. And, and it was painful. And my feet hurt. And I was tired and exhausted and, and scared and hungry and lonely and kicking myself for not staying at home at my new apartment and you know being ready for work and being responsible so I continued to walk until the weather was just unbearable and you know I it, it was so dark out except for when the lightning flashed and blinded my eyes and then that's all I could see for the next you know uh, period of time and then I imagined you know in the darkness what if a bobcat comes out and bites my calf and or what if a bear mauls me or Worse, what if a mountain lion leaps on my back with its yellow stained incisors and bites into the cervical part of my spine? And, and you know, that might be better than this. And, and you know, I just kept walking and I saw an orange light shimmering through the trees up ahead. And like a one track minded moth, I headed right for it. And to my disillusionment and discouragement, the house was black inside. There wasn't a car in the driveway, and the weather got worse. And it came, the water came down in buckets, and I did like any scared animal would do. I scurried underneath the deck, and I curled up in a fetal position, and I tried to comfort myself and retain some sen sense of sanity and, and convince myself that I'm going to make it through this somehow. Meanwhile, water is pouring through the boards of the porch, and rivulets are surrounding me and streaking through the sand. And the, Concrete against my back is cold, and the frigging mosquitoes <laughs> are ravaging my body. And I thought, you know, at least it's better to be, getting, to, to be bitten by a mosquito than some mountain lion. <laughs> and, and miraculously, I fell asleep. And I only know this because I awoke at twilight, and I crawled out from my impromptu bedroom, and... Uh, hopped across the unsuspecting homeowner's lawn like a cottontail and over lawn ornaments and through man-made flower beds and to the pavement uh, of Route 113. And you know what? I was glad to be on the road again. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I took a stop and peed on the side of the road. And as I did, uh, twin headlights came around the corner and like a deer in the headlights, I froze. But then I managed to zip up my zipper, and I stuck out my shaking, cold, soggy, wrinkled thumb, 
And a sense of cynicism overcame me, and I thought, I'm never going to get home. And the car stopped. I ran to the passenger door and fell into the passenger seat. And the man looked at me and said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Concord. He said, where have you been? I must have looked like a refugee. I felt like one. And <clears throat> I told him my story. And he was empathetic, and he was caring, and he said, you know what? Just go to sleep. And so I did. And I didn't know this person. I didn't know what might happen to me. And, but I awoke in Tilton on I-93, and I looked at the hands on the dashboard clock, and it said 6.15. And for the first time, I had hope that I might actually make it to work on time. And soon we got to Concord, and he dropped me off at Bridge Street now, presently, Loudon Road. And I walked about a quarter of a mile uh, and stopped at Ideal Market and bought a package of donuts and a quart of milk and had breakfast over the next course of the next couple of blocks. And I got to my apartment, and it felt like home sweet home, even though I hadn't even slept there yet. And I jumped into the hot steaming shower, and it felt like heaven itself. And then I got out, and I put on a brand new button-up shirt, brand new pair of Levi's blue jeans. I closed the door and locked it behind me. I walked five minutes to Beckett Glass, an aluminum company. I pushed the front door open. I looked up at this big... 1950s vintage clock. It said 7:59, and I felt somehow resurrected, and relieved, and encouraged, and fulfilled that I managed to overcome such great difficulty that I made it to work one minute early. Oh. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was so physically uncomfortable yeah. for the last 10 minutes. Not as much going. as I was. No, no, no. You, you took us there, that's for sure. Boy. And you got the job, right? I did. Okay, good. <laughs> totally deserving. Next up, we have Marianne Pernald, a freelance photographer who has lived in Portsmouth since 1983, has won many awards for her work. She started freelancing for several publications in Washington, D.C., where she was commissioned to do portraits of politicians. Isn't it good that that was a while back, Marianne? <laughs> in fact, she was Jimmy Carter's campaign photographer. In 1973, she attended a seminar with Ansel Adams. I didn't know that he was still alive then. Yeah, great. In Yosemite National Park, and she was invited to return as his assistant the following year. How great is that for background adventure? <laughs> Tonight, she'll tell us about a different type of adventure, one that has little to do with DC politicians or Yosemite National Park, but much to do with altering expectations in her story. Um, and I'm going to be interviewing Marianne afterwards. And um, some of you may have, this is just a little seed of information have remembered there was a woman who asked a question of uh, Hillary back in 2008 that got national press. And um, what was that question, Marianne? How do you do it? How do you do it? Marianne is that woman. Mm -hmm. But tonight, she's going to tell us a story about getting stuck in paradise. Come on up, Marianne. I did photograph Trump in Washington, D.C., actually. 
What are the most exciting, heartwarming, and surprising question a mother could ever hear from her 20-year-old son? Hey, Mom, why don't you come down to Caius Cochinas and celebrate New Year's Eve with me? Well, I got such a call. And Caius Cochinas is a little island off the coast of Honduras. It's bare-bones scuba resort with one big lodge and several buildings and a beach that's hardly worth mentioning. And he'd been working there as a dive master for about four or five years, and, and he invited me down. Can you imagine that? So I packed with great enthusiasm. I packed my, the, my frilliest clothes and my bikini and had visions of blue skies and warm water and umbrella drinks and people in beautiful outfits and lots of good conversation. And after 18 hours of flying, uh, our plane was diverted to Roatan, which is another island off the coast of Honduras, because La Ceiba, where I was supposed to go, was washed out due to rain. So we had to wait for another plane with better instruments and be better landing gear. Finally came two hours later, got on plane, got all settled in, took off. All of a sudden, the guy behind me starts getting up and, and praying in Spanish and getting on his hands and knees and making the signs of the cross because it was, it was terrible weather. It was, it was a monsoon. But because it was 1999, nothing was done about it. It was just one of those things. It was not after 9-11. So, so we finally landed, and I dashed through the rain with all my luggage because my son wanted videotapes and food and an espresso machine and all that stuff. <laughs> and um, so I get to the hotel and take a shower, and it's raining so hard. I go down to the bar and acquaint myself, and everybody knew Caper. My son's name is Caper. And um, I come back to the hotel room, and I got a call from Caper, and he said, Mom, this storm is really messing us up. Could you please take a cab and go 10 miles south to a town called Armenia, which is nine miles, would make the boat ride nine miles instead of 22 miles. So I said, absolutely. So I get a cab, and Carlos, oh, you've worked so hard to get that luggage in my car, in his car. And we get in the car, and two minutes later, he does the sign of the cross. <laughs> like 14 times. And I start doing it too because I, I thought it was tradition, right? So two miles out, we round the corner on this dirt road, and there's a stream washing out our road. So he looks at me. He looks at the stream. He looks at the stream again and the windshield wipers, and then he looks to the side of the road, and he decides to get out of the car and pee. So I said, gosh, he must know something that's up ahead that I don't know. So I did the same thing. I, I went to the other side of the road. So, so we get back in. Well, we had to ford five of these um, rivers in the road. We finally get to the end of the road, which dead end did on a beach. So we pull up, raining so hard. 
And between the windshield wiping, we could see these 10 local Caribbean studs standing in front of us with their arms crossed, like, what is going on here? Who is this person? What does she want? And the cab driver, with a love in his heart, turned around to me and he said, are you sure you want to get out? And trusting my son, he would never put me in harm's way, I said, absolutely. So I went up to the toughest-looking guy, and I went up to him and I put my hand on my chest and I said, Capers, Mama. Well, he broke up in the biggest smile I've ever seen in my life. He hugged me and lifted me up. And as he did that, I looked over his shoulder and there was Caper doubling over with laughter. <laughs> He'd set me up, you know. So we do the usual, how was your trip, blah, 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 get the luggage, let's get in the boat. So we get in this little dinghy. It's like 10 feet, there were like seven of us in this little dinghy. And I clung on to this guy that I became very close to quickly. <laughs> and the wind was howling and the rain was beating and my hair was blowing and I loved every minute of it because I was with my son. And I saw how kind and how respectful he was to everyone on the boat and how capable. And it just made me feel good to be his mom. And so after an hour of, of one-foot swells and rain, and we got to, to, to Caius Cochinos. There's a modest building, uh, several stone cabins, a beach that's like 20 feet by five, and they had a dog named Cuba. That was very delightful. So I, I get settled into my little cabin, and then go to the main lodge to see what's going on. And after I exchanged the videos and unloaded my luggage and all that stuff, um, there was nobody there except my son, Caper, um, the owner of the manager of the resort, and the chef, Donna, and myself. And so we just chit-chatted and so forth and so on. And after 17 videos, um, you know, we celebrated New Year's Eve the next day, and so consequently, it rained Monday, it rained Tuesday, it rained Wednesday, it rained Thursday, it rained Friday, during which time Caper tried very, very hard to make sure I was happy. He took me for a boat ride around the island, a walk in the woods, took me to a neighbor's house on another island, cooked dinner for me, I took cooking lessons with Donna, watched more videos. We'd sit at the end of the dock with our ganja, hoping for a sunrise the next day. <laughs> and so finally Saturday I left. And wouldn't you know it? Sunny, beautiful blue sky, blah, blah, blah. So I came home, and this is what, 19, 18 years ago. My son now will be 40 in two years, and I'm hoping I'll get a call saying, hey, mom. He's married now. Hey, Mom, come on down to Caius Cochinas and spend New Year's Eve with us. And by the way, can you babysit? <laughs> Thank you. Geez, Marianne, I didn't realize we'd get drenched two, two stories oh, in a I row. Know. And tea, and tea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Things that are important in life. 
For our final story tonight, we have John Lovering, and uh, our guy John. He's a lifelong resident of New Hampshire, now living in Dover with his wife of 48 years, Melanie. He's a retired high school biology and media production teacher with 35 years in the profession. John's hobbies include video and audio editing and the restoration of old tube radios from the 1930s through the late 50s. For 13 years, John volunteered at Portsmouth Community Radio as creator and host of audio theater, as well as being the audio engineer for the program Don't Dis My Ability. In January of 2014, he produced the original radio version of this very program, True Tales Live. Currently, both Don't Dis My Ability and True Tales Live are produced and seen right here at PPM-TV. John also hosts a new version of the audio theater called Heirloom Radio, which is heard as a podcast on soundcloud.com. His story tonight will turn back the clock to 1963 when four teenage boys in a 1954 Ford Fairlane had a date with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. The title of John's true tale is Only One Way Out. John Lovering, <laughs> our guy. Well, I hope you feel that way when I finish. Oh. Um, let's see. Okay, uh, it was an, exp- I, should, I guess I should start off this way. Slop, mop, rinse, squeeze. Slop, mop, rinse, squeeze. It was extremely hot and humid. I was mopping the floor of the kitchen in the place that was known as Elliott Community Hospital in Keene, New Hampshire. It had no air conditioning. Yes, it was the August evening of 1963, and after the 200 meals of the day had been served, the trays had been cleaned, the utensils cleaned and put away, the pots scrubbed and hung up on the big hooks over the stainless steel countertops, I had the pleasure of being the person that got to close the place down and I had to mop the floor. Now, I looked up at the the very large round clock, black clock, I had a uh, black edge on it, huge round one with a black dial and the time said 7 p.m. and I had been mopping the floor for about 20 minutes at that time. My mop was a heavy, wet rag mop which I used to uh, slop the mixture of hot water and disinfectant on the floor Uh, slop, mop, rinse, squeeze, that was the pattern, slop, mop, rinse, squeeze, over and over again. Pushing along a uh, low-tech four-wheel galvanized metal mop bucket with a ringer combo on the top. My kitchen worker uniform consisted of a white shirt and white pants, and I was soaking wet from perspiration and also down near my legs from the slopping and mopping of the floor. But they were well disinfected, I might might say that. Anyway, it was slop, mop, rinse, rinse, squeeze. I was 16 years old, and this was my first official summer job. It also was a great incentive to go to college. (laughs) Slop, mop, rinse, squeeze. (laughs) The clock showed 7.25, and as I finished the last squeeze, I put the uh, bucket in the closet. I shut the closet door, shut the lights off, shut the door to the room. I went out to the parking lot to get into the 1949 Ford pickup that I had. I had just received my license. I was only 16. My father wouldn't let me drive the car. 
He said any police officer that would give me permission to drive certainly wasn't going to get the use of the, I wasn't going to get the use of the car if I'd gone through that route, but I could have the 49 pickup. I love this pickup truck. I, it was blue, dark blue, and I even named it the Blue Angel. I took uh, white uh, stenciling right across the tailgate. Unfortunately, somebody tooted the horn one day and said, what's Blue Angle? Oh, no. I spelled it wrong. Oh. Anyway, when I got out there, uh, there was a friend leaning against the Blue Angle. His name was Gary. And he says, hey, Lovering, he says, how would you like to go to the drive-in movie tonight? A few of us are going to go to the Keene drive-in. It's a good movie playing. Thought you might like to come along. And I said, who's us? And around the corner came Larry and David. It's us. We're going to go. Come on along. It'll be a good time. Well, I said, I only got $4 in my wallet. Ah. Gary says, you don't need to worry. 50 cents is all you need to get in the movies tonight. I said, 50 cents? He says, yeah. Larry? David and you are going to get in in my trunk. Oh. You're going to get in my trunk and we're going to drive into the movie theater. I'll pay the $2 ticket. You guys can pay me later. And it comes out to be 50 cents a piece. And you'll have some money to buy something at the snack bar. I said, well, um, I guess so, but uh, can we all fit in your trunk? No problem, he said. Famous last words, no problem. So I would leave the truck in the parking lot at the hospital, and I would climb aboard Gary's 1954 Ford Fairlane sedan, which was totally rusted out. Uh, in fact, we, the color of this car was, as I recall, Bondo. <laughs> and uh, it was held together by bailing wire, literally. We called the car a, the Jell-O light car because his headlights were uh, held on to the frame of the car with bailing wire, and every time he would go over a bump, the lights would go up and down like this and flicker. And I'm sure the people coming the other way love that, you know, they dim your lights. Well, that's what we call it anyway. Now, we had a, a, plan, a plan that only could have been done by the Pentagon, really. Uh, the Pentagon-like plan included stopping at a parking lot of the American Optical Company, which was about a quarter of a mile down the road from the uh, drive-in. And we were going to, Larry, David, and, and myself, we're going to stealthily sneak into the back of the trunk and get into the trunk. And uh, it, we thought that would work out pretty well. And I would only have to pay 50 cents for all this. This was, this was going to be great, so I was really looking forward to it. Now, when we pulled into the American Optical parking lot, Gary mentioned to me, uh, you know, I've been having a little problem with a lock on that trunk. It's a little finicky. <laughs> now, the term, the term finicky is okay, but when you put it with the phrase lock on the trunk, I became a little nervous. It was bothersome to me, actually. Uh, but in a little while, I found that we were all standing out at the end of the trunk, and Gary seemed to have this ritualistic process of opening the trunk. He walked up to it. He licked the key. <laughs> Lubricant, I'm assuming. He put the, put the key into the lock. He, he jiggled, he twisted, he turned, he up and down, sideways, took it out, a little more lubricant. <laughs> put it back in again, twisted, jiggled, and bang, with his fist, the trunk opened. I said, wow, it, uh, success. He said, okay, guys, get in. Now, I was the biggest guy. I weighed 250. I was 5'11", and Larry was shorter and thinner, and Dave was even smaller than Larry. I got in the center, and I got in on my stomach, and I crawled all the way up, so my head was right near the rear seat of the car. In those days, you could actually see the springs practically in the, in the rear seat. Larry got in beside me with his feet up near my head, and so didn't 
uh, Dave on the other side, and their heads were down near the opening of the trunk. We were like three sardines in a can, tail, head, tail, you know how they mount them in the can. And uh, the, we, we basically thought that uh, this was going to be fun, and it wouldn't, wouldn't take long. And the trunk slammed shut, and we heard the latch click. Wasn't finicky about doing that. And the driver's door let out a squeak, and Gary got in the car. And he yelled, you guys all set? You bet, yeah. But uh, hurry up and get there with you. It's a little uh, hot and humid in here, a little stuffy. Okay, we'll be right there. We'll do. Car started down the road. It was only a short way, paved road. But turning into the drive-in theater, the road in there was gravel. As soon as he turned in there, the dust started to come up through all the rust holes. Now, we couldn't see anything. We're in the dark, but we could smell it. And it was, we started coughing. And he said, you guys need to be quiet because I'm getting close to the ticket booth. So we were complaining about the accommodations at that time. And uh, we shut up because we heard the ticket attendant say, uh, how many? And Gary said, oh, just me. And he said, just you, just one? Yeah. And there was a pause. And what he was doing was checking the back seats and looking around. He, he didn't think to look in the trunk because he knew no one was stupid enough to go in the trunk. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I, Gary had the uh, audacity to pay the guy the $2. And we were going to uh, get into the movie for 50 cents. I thought maybe it's worth it. I'm not too sure. While the car was stopped at the ticket booth, of course, the dust stopped coming in. So for a moment, it was a little respite there. Again, we're in the total dark. All of a sudden, Gary decides to peel out, and all the dust came up through, and oh, it was a vengeance of dust. It was incredible. It got to the point where um, we could hardly breathe, and now Gary was on the hunt for the best drive-in movie theater hump. Now, those are the, the mounds that they park, you try to park your car on so you get the best shot at the screen. You have to make sure the speaker works. And Gary was driving all over the place, and he'd see one over there, and he wanted to get next to the snack bar. We were getting tossed around in the back of the car. I mean, he'd go to the right and the left, over the hump, down the hump, back up. And pretty soon, uh, as this was going on, Larry began to laugh. I didn't think it was so funny, but Larry began to laugh. And ordinarily, that wouldn't have been a problem, except that in the hunt for the best hump, how would I say, the hump hunt, I guess? <laughs> My face had now managed to get about eight inches from Larry's rear end. Oh. Now, Larry, like a good son, had eaten supper that night before he came. And his mother, in fact, he had seconds, I learned later. His mother had um, brown bread, hot dogs, and beans. And beans. <laughs> now, um, Larry's laughter was causing some sort of methane induce gastrointestinal problems. And the harder he laughed, the more methane was induced. And it began to leak out. Um, I could not move. I, my face was right up against him. And he started laughing even harder because that was happening, and it got worse. Hot and humid, dust in our lungs, a stinking trunk now, it pretty much ruined that whole experience for me uh, that I call the trunk experience was pretty much ruined. Uh, but finally, Gary parked the car. 
we said, get us out of here, Gary. He said, wait a minute, guys. I got to check the speaker and hang it on the window and make sure it's all right. <laughs> Never mind the damn speaker. Get us out of the trunk. Okay, okay. And we heard the door shut. Need a squeak every excuse me, a squeak every time he opened the door. And crunch, 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 he walked alongside the cow. We're still in the dark. And we hear the, we hear the key go in. And we hear the jiggling and the moving around. And then we, it was quiet for a second. Then the key went in again, jiggle around. We're waiting for the bang. And it doesn't come. Because Gary goes, uh, guys, there's a cop coming. He says, I've got to get, I'm going to get back in the car. Crunch, 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 back in the car, bang, the door shuts, the whole car squeaks, and we're all quiet. I mean, we're sitting in there, laying in there, thinking, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Now, if, here we are stuck in a trunk, and we could be arrested and put away for I don't know how long for stealing a dollar fifty worth of drive-in service. <laughs> and uh, we thought we were in a lot of trouble. We could hear the police officer. He actually walked by, and... And Gary said, it was all clear. And Gary then said to us, um, guys, listen, he said, uh, you gotta, what do you got to do to get out of the trunk? He said, you need to push from the inside of the trunk to push the rear seat forward. And I'll pull from the back. I'll get in the back and I'll pull it. We'll pull that rear seat down. You guys can crawl out into the passenger space. And I, I said to Gary, Gary, that's ridiculous. Why don't you go around to the back and unlock the trunk? There was a long pause. I can't. The key broke off in the lock. <laughs> this is the only way out. Good title for a story, don't you think? Okay. All right. Oh, no. Things were going from bad to worse fast. I couldn't push with my head because I was up against the thing. And there's the feet beside me. And they started kicking. So I'm trying to protect my nose and my mouth from being kicked in the face. And finally, the seat gave way and tilted about maybe eight or ten inches forward, leaving a gap between the rear window shelf and the seat. It was tipped like this. So Larry and David stuck their legs out. One was on one side. So we had four legs sticking out with sneakers on them. And then Gary says, the cop's coming back. <laughs> and he's got his flashlight. So Larry, David... And I just, we just were totally quiet, just froze. Now, we could see now, we could see some light. And we heard the crunch, crunch, and all of a sudden there was a light beam shining on Larry's sneakers, and then on David, Dave's sneakers, and then back on Larry's, and then back to Dave's. And then it was gone, and crunch, 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 he went on by. And I'm going like, oh my gosh, he couldn't, he must have seen us. He was looking at... Uh, and I figured he probably thought we were being punished enough. Uh, and, and he was right, actually. That was, uh, that's probably exactly what happened. Well, he, he went by, didn't bother us. The door opened up, Gary got in the back, they finished tugging and pulling, and the thing opened up. We were able to crawl out into the back of the car. Now, I got to tell you, we were so thirsty. I mean, um, dust can patch a fellow, especially when you're in a trunk with two other fellows that are also parched. And it was a stinking trunk, as I mentioned before. Uh, now, we decided to go into the snack bar and get something cold to drink, maybe a hot dog, no beans, especially for Larry. <laughs> and uh, it turns out, though, that when we got to the parking, uh, excuse me, the snack bar, our high school principal was moonlighting there as the projectionist. And the light bulbs and the cameras at the projection booth at those times were huge. 
and they produced so much heat they actually had chimneys to, to vent them. Well, he had come out of the projection booth to uh, get a cold drink, and he looked over and he saw us. And the people in the snack bar kept turning around and looking at us. We didn't realize what we looked like because it was dark. It was a drive-in. And of course, we didn't really have a chance till we came under the bright lights of the snack bar to see Gary look pretty good. Uh, Larry and David looked fair. But me, remember I had a white shirt on, white pants. I was covered with grease from the trunk floor, rubber, st rubber stains, dirt, dust. My hair was soaking wet. All st I did have hair at that time. <laughs> All, all stuck down. Everybody's head, we had, where we were sweating, the, the dust had come down. We had these patterns all under our, we looked like zombies, basically. And people were just looking at us, and the principal just kept staring at me, so I went, I gave him a thumbs up. And he didn't smile or anything, so we just said, Gary, get the refreshments, we'll see you in the car, and we turned around and, and went out. Well, um, we had time to watch at least some of the movie. Uh, I'm not even going to mention the hordes of mosquitoes that came in through the rust holes and the little slot between the speaker wire. They, the mosquitoes were everywhere inside the car. Hot, humid mosquitoes, uh, dirty. It, it was hardly worth the 50 cents. Anyway, um, we came to the end of the movie, and now the police officer who had been walking around with his flashlight was at the end of the driveway directing traffic onto the paved road. Come ahead, come ahead, flashlight doing this. And, and Gary, he's in line. We're on the way out. And all of a sudden, he pulls over to the side and says, guys, that's the same cop. He says, maybe you better get back in that trunk because he might recognize the car. Gary had to take some pretty bad punches to his shoulders from those of us in the back seat because we weren't going back in the trunk and so he let it go. As I recall, uh, I got thinking about later how stupid that was. We could have suffocated in that trunk. I was old enough to know better but it sounded like a good plan um, and I also felt sorry that I missed a, a really spectacular movie. I only saw a little bit of it. It was with uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. It was called Cleopatra. And uh, on the way out, I did say, well, I guess I got my 50 cents worth one way out. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, John. Wow, kind of uncomfortable wow. night. Hold on. Lots of images. Thank you so much to tonight's wonderful storytellers for these excellent, if sometimes uncomfortable, stories. That's what, we, that's what we get for having a theme, getting stuck. Um, and also, so many thanks to our in-studio audience. It really brings us to life for us. Thank you for coming. Coming up next, um, we'll hear an interview of two of tonight's storytellers. That's going to be, I believe, Marianne Pernold and Erica Skoglund. But first, I have a few things to tell you. True Tales Live will be back on May 30th with a theme of family gatherings. We still have room for more storytellers, so if you would like to be on that show, email us, truetaleslive1 at gmail.com. If you are interested in telling a story 
in May or any other time, but would like a little bit of help, maybe run through your story, get some feedback, get a sense of what it will be like, we offer workshops for free here on the first Tuesday of actually most months. We are taking a summer break. But our next one is going to be on May 2nd. Um, Pat, David, and I help help at them, and they're here, PPMTV 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So we'd love to see you 7.30 to 9. True Tales Live will continue at PPMTV every last Tuesday of the month from 6.30 to 11. <coughs> we will still have a live audience and invite people to come and join us. The show also airs on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And will be available as video on demand. The way to find it is to go to YouTube and search for PPM TV True Tales Live. Let's give our thanks to some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering. <laughs> Kat Spaulding. Steve Koval, David Frainer, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you for listening, and now we will go to the interviews.